Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So Lord, we're thankful for Jesus, not just in this season, but certainly in this season we remember in a unique way that you were happy to send your son to leave your presence, to come into our mess, to take on human flesh so that he could die in our place. And I pray, Lord, that we would now find deep joy in that death, deep joy that he took the place that we deserve, that he took the sin, the punishment for sin that we deserve, that he was happy uh, to be crushed that we might live. So Lord, be with us. Help us find true and lasting joy in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. One uh, pastor I listen to often regularly says something like this. He says, all of us are one phone call away from our temporary or circumstantial joy being upended. But all of us are one phone call away from our temporary or circumstantial joy being upended. And that could be a call about a sickness, that could be a call about a job, that could be a call about any number of things. But the reason he points that out is he's trying to help his people get to a place where there's a joy that's unshakable, a joy that's unchanging, a joy that's not shifting based on whatever the phone call is that you get, right? We, we get good phone calls too, and we're meant to enjoy those and embrace those. And yet all of us in some level or another, and all the more, the longer we live, realize that the phone calls are mixed and the sorrows are many and the joys are many and therefore we're sorrowful and rejoicing. And so this Advent season where we look back at the first coming of Jesus as a baby, all the way forward to his death for sinners, then look forward again to the day when he returns to make all things new, is really a quest for joy, but a quest for true joy, unshakable joy, the kind of joy that lives in you so deep that no matter what the phone call is, no matter what the heartache is, you don't have to be shaken. It doesn't mean you won't be sad. It doesn't mean you won't be sorrowful, but it means that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for you and not against you in the person and work of Jesus, and so you can have joy. And what Zephaniah does, one of the things I appreciate about this book, is that he just makes the picture so clear, right? Probably more clear than my fuzzy mind really wants to make it. It's just very clear that when Jesus returns, he will do away with all sin and bring eternal wrath to all who have ignored and rejected him. Which means no matter how good all the phone calls are, if you find yourself there, you can't really have a sturdy joy. And yet for those who have trusted in him, for the forgiveness of their sins and found refuge in his name, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and bring them into his presence where there's fullness of joy, which means no matter how bad the phone call is, we can be sturdy in his joy. And that's what this text is all about. This text is actually all about the Lord getting on the witness stand and rendering a verdict. And Zephaniah wants you to be ready so that when he returns, the verdict will be safe. Eternal joy, eternal rest in me. So let's look at how Zephaniah points us that way. Point number one is just wait for his testimony. Look at verse 
8. It says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to testify. Now, the ESV says it a little bit differently there, but the NIV and the NASB choose this translation, when I rise up to testify. There's two reasons I think that seems like the right translation. First, in this passage, what we're going to see is an intentional courtroom setting being set up by Zephaniah, where two different verdicts are handed down. Therefore, this language of testify is meant to be like a, a courtroom, like the Lord is going to take the stand and lay out what he's seen and what he's heard. And second, Jeremiah, who's likely writing to the same people at the same time about many of the same things, clearly has the idea of a witness testimony when he uses this same word. So listen to Jeremiah 29 23, and see if it sounds to you like Zephaniah. It says, Because they have done outrageous things in Israel, they've committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. They've spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am the witness, declares the Lord. The same word there. So God here is giving the reason for his punishment of his people, and he lists himself as the witness. The point of this phrase, therefore, is to tell the people that the Lord is going to take the witness stand. That's why he says before, hey, you don't think I see, you don't think I'm going to act, but actually I'm coming soon, and you know who's going to get on the witness stand? Not your neighbors, not your family members, me. (laughs) I'm going to get on the witness stand, and I'm going to declare all that I've seen and all that I've heard. There's no thing that is hidden from him. And so he's the perfect witness. And we've seen in Zephaniah already all the sin that's been mentioned. Then we've seen the the call for repentance to be hidden on that day of the Lord. And then after that, all the punishment promised. And the reality now is he's saying, wait for me, I'm going to take the stand. And so the, the word here from Zephaniah is, don't wait to repent. Don't wait to repent. Let one of the things that I witness to when I take the witness stand is not just your sins, but also your repentance, your turning, your humbling yourself before me. Do it soon, Israel, because I'm coming soon. Point number two is a jealous purifying for a global praise. So what are the two possible verdicts that could be rendered? Where the first one is in the next part of verse eight. He says this, for my decision... My verdict, the judgment, is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. He's going to gather them. He's going to bring them together. For what? To pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth shall be consumed. And so the picture is of a gathering, but not a gathering you want to be a part of. Pictures of a a gathering, a gathering where the Lord's holy wrath is going to come. Notice the courtroom language again. A decision has been made. A verdict has been rendered. If the people will not obey and gather themselves, remember he said gather yourselves, 2-1, to repent in 2-1, then God will gather them. So there's two choices that are clear. Gather yourselves Humble yourselves. Come together in repentance. You'll find refuge in the name of the Lord. You'll be hidden in his name. You who are hiding in your sins, you can be hidden in Jesus. But if you won't gather yourselves to repent, I'm going to gather you. (laughs) The choices are not repent or hide yourselves. The choices are gather yourselves in repentance or be gathered. And he says he'll consume 
the whole earth in the fire of his jealousy. We have to wrap our minds around that for a moment. Jealousy is not usually seen as a good thing, right? It's usually seen as a negative. But here, God is jealous. God's jealous for the sake of his name. He's jealous to have a people who praise him. And he's jealous here because people are praising false things. They're praising other gods. God is saying, I'm the creator. I'm perfect and worthy. I'm all holy, all wise, all sovereign. And because I'm righteous for the sake of my own glory, I can't excuse your sin. I have to be jealous for the sake of my own name. If I was not jealous for my own name, jealous for people praising my name, I couldn't be God anymore. Because I'd be saying that something else could be more valuable or worthwhile than me. For anyone else, this kind of jealousy would be sinful pride, right? If, if I stood up here and said, if you go after anyone else but me, right, I'm going to punish you. You'd say, Dave has lost his mind, right? He's full of pride, but that's because I'm not God. I'm not worthy of that. It's not the only right thing in the universe. It's not what you were made to do, but you were made for this. God is this worthy, and so his jealousy is right. His jealousy is righteous. And so God's first jealous decision is to punish all those who have ignored him and not repented. However, there's a second decision, a second verdict as well. Look at verse 9. He says, at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And so there's this picture, kind of this dual thing happening in this gathering. There's these people being gathered and fires coming down. And for much of the people, it's a a fire of punishment. But for some, it's a fire of purification. They're not consumed. They're purified somehow. The second decision that will come from the testimony of the Lord will be to change people's speech to a pure speech. And when he says peoples, he most likely means all the peoples he already mentioned up to that point. Pastor David said in the welcome, don't forget the nations. God is always after his global glory. God is always going after people from every tribe and tongue and people and language and nation. And here he says, that's what I'm going to do. They gather people from all the nations and make them have pure speech. He's mentioned Israel often, but he's also mentioned many other nations. So this is pointing toward a global purification. And what are they purified to do? To call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Right? That's how jealous God's jealousy begins to work for our good. He changes us. He purifies us. He gives us the ability to do what we're made to do. Call on his name and serve him with one accord where there's fullness of joy. God knows in his jealousy for his glory that it also works for our good. That the only way people will ever find true joy and eternal joy is in him. He's jealous for that. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Anyone in here want full joy? Full, right? You don't want half-hearted joy. No one would ever say, yes, give me half the joy. Just want half of it, right? You want full joy. Do you want it for a little bit of time? Or do you want it forever? (laughs) Forever, right? That's the kind of joy we want. Full joy forever. And here, God is saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to purify a people to praise my name for their full joy forever. 
Notice there are people from all nations coming to worship the king, even places that would have been known as Israel's enemies, right? Israel would be receiving this and going, I don't know about them. You sure about Cush? Right? You sure about Assyria? We don't really like them. And here he says, the peoples. (laughs) I'm going to bring the peoples to worship me. There's one group that will be punished and destroyed and another that will be purified and delivered to worship and serve in the name of the Lord. And it's not across ethnic or economic lines. It's about humility and repentance and finding refuge in the name of the Lord. In other words, God is a global God deserving of global worship. We see this promise in Genesis 12 when it says Abraham will be a blessing to all nations. Right, we see this fulfilled in Revelation 5 as the nations gather around the throne to worship King Jesus and the one who sits on the throne. We see this as a reversal of the Tower of Babel where the people had one voice that they wanted to lift up their own name and God disperses them. Here God says, I'm going to bring you together and purify your voice that you'll worship me again. And the readers at this time would have recognized just that reversal. So God has stood up as a witness. God has delivered his verdicts as a judge. There are two separate verdicts for two separate peoples. And the verdict shows a global punishment for the proud, unrepentant sinners and global purifying by God for repentant sinners seeking refuge in the substitute sacrifice that we saw from chapter 1. This really is, in this case, very Very clear, one side and the other. Two rows, go this way or this way. This choice or this choice. Really a dividing line down, will you humble yourself before God? Two roads going two drastically different ways. One towards joy, protection, and life. And one towards sadness, destruction, and death. So the call this morning is, we want to be those calling on the name of the Lord. We want to be those who are gathering to worship and serve him with one accord. We want to be those who have turned from sin in humble repentance. And this is a call to to wake up where we haven't been. A call to not be those who mess around with things like lust and impatience and selfishness and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and anger and pride and foolishness and apathy and bitterness and gossip as if they were no big deal. That's who the Lord's writing to, a people who had forgotten that they even had the law, people that are going, yeah, God's not really going to care that much. We can keep messing around in these little ways, right? Would we be those who have turned and called on the name of the Lord and begin to serve him instead of serving the name of the gods of popularity and comfort and power, try not to build our own little tower of Babel (laughs) rather than worship our Lord, So all this has happened, and so now Israel is called to wait, to wait. Punishment or purification, wait for my witness. The next point is a shameless people caught up in Godward praise. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is awesome. This is where Zephaniah really gets exciting and uh, fun and sweet. Verses 11 and 12, on that day, on that day where this fire's coming down, On that day, you will not be put to shame. Is it because they're perfect? 
No, you'll not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So there's deeds by which they've rebelled. He's saying, you have rebelled. I've told you how you've rebelled. You've all rebelled. You've, you've went astray. But on that day, you're not going to be put to shame. Why? For I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah says that after this jealous purifying that brings about global praise, there will only be humble and lowly people left. There will be no more Tower of Babel attempts, no more attempts to build our own kingdom, make a name for ourselves if that's the most important thing. These are people, look at it, that have sought refuge in the name of the Lord. They've decided his name is the only safe place. These are not perfect people. They've done rebellious things. They've simply trusted in the name of God. A definition of humility could simply be finding refuge in God instead of finding refuge in yourself. Where are you going to find your safety? Where are you going to find your hope? Where are you going to find your joy? Humility says, in the Lord. Pride says, in me, in my job, in my family, in my comfort, in all these other places. And Zephaniah would say, don't do it. Done evil deeds. The only safe place is in Jesus. God mentions all the deeds which they've done against him, which we know from this book are many. But the amazing thing, and it really is breathtakingly amazing, if we would stop and think about it, is that for those who have taken refuge in the name of the Lord, they will not be put to shame for their evil deeds. God could put us to shame. <laughs> he could, right? He could, I mean, if you think about your life, like your car ride here maybe, Right or whatever. Right, none of us go very long without sin. None of us go very long without walking away from God and walking away from Jesus and thinking, in this moment, I have a better way. And God could bring out the rolodex of all those things and say, "Be ashamed! Are you crazy to walk away from me over and over again? How how crazy do you have to be?" And yet here He says He will not put us to shame. This is a wicked people. They forgot they had God's law. This is a foolish people. This is a rebellious people. And yet they've come to themselves and are going to God saying, you're my refuge. You're my only hope. Right? Pleading for mercy. I see my sin. I see years and years of sin. Some of us in this room stuck in decades of sin. The secret sins I've committed, no one else knows about. The wicked thoughts I've had, the wicked things I've done, the times I've been apathetic, not all in with my time or energy or resources for God's glory. I see it, and all I can do is throw myself on God for mercy. Right? Like in the parable, the man who beats his breast and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or the guy who says, I believe, help, help my unbelief. Right? All I can do is run to the one who has seen it all, the witness and the judge in my court case and admit I'm wrong and beg for mercy. That's all that's left. Right? We are guilty. Jesus sees it all. The judge is coming. It's either punishment or purification. And for people that will throw themselves on the mercy of God, he says, I'm not going to put you to shame. I'm not going to put you to shame. There is no shame left for you. 
So my question is, can you believe that today? If you've trusted in Jesus, do you actually believe that? Or do you get in the habit of when you do that thing again, you just, you're just playing the, the list of wrongs in your head over and over again, going, I could never get close to God again. God, God wouldn't want me again. Look, look at all the ways I've messed up. I, I, I couldn't, like, I've done this for years and years. He obviously wants to put me to shame. Here it says, if you would trust in Jesus, take refuge in the name of Jesus, you will not be put to shame. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, do you want that? I would say to you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I think you spend your whole life trying to avoid shame. Right? To be popular enough to look good, to be powerful enough that no one can accuse you of anything, to be right, comfortable enough that you don't have to be worried about anything. Like we're just running, trying to avoid embarrassment and shame and comfort and keeping up these carefully manicured personas when God would just say, would you just come plead for mercy? I'll give it to you. So all you got to do is just get off the, the high horse, get off of the carefully manicured social media persona, get off of all these things, right? And just, just come and plead for mercy, and it's here. And again, in Zephaniah, the good news is it's here for wicked people, foolish people, those who have forgotten God's law. Like Ephesians said, it's by faith through grace, not by works that we should boast, but God took the initiative here. God purified them so they'd call on his name. And yet as they do this and simply admit they're wrong and plead for mercy, God delivers a verdict of no shame. Jesus stands up and testifies, seen all these things that they've done, heard all the things that they've done. I've been in their minds and their thoughts. And yeah, that's all true. But they've repented and the cross stands as a witness that their sins have been paid for. This is crazy, overwhelming, sin overcoming mercy. This is God pursuing a people with goodness and mercy all the days of their life. And notice the final outcome in verse 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Now, this is pointing towards a final day, right? This is pointing towards a final day. This has not happened yet. <laughs> there's not people like this quite yet, but there's a people hopefully here, right, in this room and all around the world trusting in Jesus that are growing in this. But this is pointing toward the final day when we're in the presence of Jesus and sin doesn't exist anymore inside of us or around us. Try to think about it for a minute. Like, I should just give you five minutes and think about what your life would be like if you never were tempted to sin and no one around you was tempted to sin. What would that be like? Can you even imagine a world, right? We're spending most of our lives trying to deal with our sin, <laughs> deal with other people's sins. That's why, like, everything is going wrong all the time, right? And so we're just trying to figure out how do we deal with it. There's a day coming when it's not here. Not going to be here. You're not going to sin against others. Others aren't going to sin against you. This is amazing. The only ones left will be changed people, righteous like their God, truthful like their God. After this final verdict is handed down, these purified people will be those who do no injustice, never deceive in any way. This Advent season, as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, would you let your heart long for this? <laughs> is this what I want? 
That's what my heart's longing for. And then let that longing do something. It says, I want as much of it now as I can get. I want to walk that way now. I want to talk that way now. I want to be with Jesus now. I want as much of this experience. I want to create as much of this experience through the way I live and the way I talk about Jesus. The world around me gets more of this now. Do you long for a world like this? Have you been sinful? Have you been sinned against? This is good news that it won't last forever if you trust in Jesus. But notice why. So this is ultimately true in the, in the coming new heavens, new earth. But it can be true for us in increasing ways. Now, why don't they do any injustice? Why is sin going away? How does this purification work? So that there's no injustice and no sin and no lying. Why don't they? These people have been purified. Here's what it says, because they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sounds like a weird reason at first. We should think about it though. Why no lies? Why no acting in ways that are out of line with God? The basic logic here is because there's no fear. Right? You've faced the only thing worth fearing, God and his wrath. It's been done away from you. And so it's like there's nothing else they fear. So when you've come into the perfect presence of an all-righteous God who just pardon your sins and your whole job is just live in his glory, the prophet here is saying, what could make you fear? Shamelessness leads to fearlessness. Because your sins have been forgiven and you'll never need to be ashamed, you don't need to fear anything. Be the most bold, confident, trusting, restful people in the world. Right? A person who has found mercy from the Almighty God and dwells with Him is shameless, fearless, and satisfied. That's what this is saying. Imagine you were guilty of a million crimes against a king. Right? And you go and throw yourself on His mercy, seeing yourself as truly wrong. And the king in his mercy absolves you of your crimes, but he doesn't stop there. He says, hey, whoever comes to me and asks for mercy, you know what I do? I bring him into my house. You don't got to live out there in that crazy place anymore. Come on in here. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be for you. I'm going to spend time with you. We're going to be together. I'm going to take care of your every need. And take care of your deepest longings, all those things in here that are, are broken and make you do that silly, foolish thing again. I'm going to meet that longing and I'm going to be with you. That's what I do for those who come and ask for mercy. And you had all you ever needed. You got to eat and drink and lie down, have everything provided for, everything you ever needed or wanted was met. What would you fear? What would you fear? Only the king, right? Still, maybe the king a little bit in some holy reverence. How can someone be like this? Would you need to fear lack of provision? No. So you wouldn't need to be tempted to steal or cut corners or hurt others or be anxious about finances, right? You wouldn't, none of that would be there. You'd be all right. Would you need to fear lack of protection? No. So you wouldn't need to try and defend yourself. Or try to live for a life of comfort outside of the kingdom. Would you worry about others' names being greater than yours? P. 
People getting more recognition than you or you not quite being where you want to yet in life. No. (laughs) You'd be so happily humble and dependent living on the king's blessing. You wouldn't worry about your popularity or importance. You'd just be like, I don't care. I'm with the king. (laughs) Would you fear lack of fun stuff or satisfaction or that, it, that you need to go and run after the next thing to kind of fill up that empty place in your soul. No, you'd have all of the best in the presence of the king so that the things outside of the kingdom would grow strangely dim. Be like, I don't, I don't need that stuff anymore. I've got it right here. Would you fear loneliness or rejection? No. You've been accepted and loved by the king and brought into his presence. This is a shameless people who fear nothing and therefore can rest and rejoice in their rest. So I've just been praying this week that God would do this in me. He'd do it in me. He'd refine me this way, purify me this way, remind me of how good he is, that he's taken me in. Right? Not that I'm perfect, right? Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but that I would really become more and more righteous because I'm so satisfied in God. He really is enough. Like when I say that, I'm like, he is enough. <laughs> when I bring my anxieties to him, you're enough. Bring my anger to him, you're enough. Right? I bring my fear to him, you're enough. I bring my frustration to him, you're enough. Right? Just, he's enough. He, I'm right here and I get to be with him all the time. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He's a very present help in my time of need. He's adopted me. He's brought me in. He's never going to leave me. He's going to finish the good work he started in me so I can rest. Stop being silly and ridiculous and fickle and fragile in the way I interact with the world around that makes me sinful and foolish. May God do this in us, more satisfied in his presence where there's no longer any shame, but only infinite, everlasting provision, protection, intimacy, love, joy, and peace. That'd be worth rejoicing in. That'd be the kind of joy that wouldn't go away on Monday when we get a hard phone call. That'd be the kind of joy that would make sin unattractive in these realities as we live for the name of the king who's pronounced no shame over us. The only question we have to ask then is how could a righteous God who's so jealous for his own glory pronounce two different verdicts? How could he not simply pronounce all of us to receive the death penalty for our sins? I'm just going to read you one of my favorite passages through from Romans 8, 1 to 4, that tells exactly how he does it. This is what Zephaniah is pointing towards. There is therefore now no condemnation. Amazing. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, right? That's Advent, that's the coming of Jesus. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice that like in Zephaniah, God is the initiator in this sequence. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God steps in to get pour up mercy and grace. And he did so in the most crazy way ever. He sent his own son in human form. The son left the infinite joys of fellowship in the triune God and came down and took on our mess and took on our sinful flesh. 
The God man Jesus came as a sacrifice for sin, took our condemnation, took all our sin, cast it as far as the east is from the west. And because of Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. In other words, God's jealousy for his own name was poured out on the cross on his own son. So that the cross is a cross of the jealousy of God for our good, for our good. As you read this, it's hard. I mean, if you're like me, the sins that you've committed, the problems of the day, right? I, I am not naturally, right before I go to bed, thinking happy, rosy thoughts. I'm not normally right when I wake up, thinking all sorts of happy, rosy thoughts. Just thinking of the mistakes I made, the ways I messed up. Maybe thinking about the ways I messed up 10 years ago for some reason, right? These things just come flooding back. Right, filthy thoughts, every bitter sigh, every moment of gossip, impatience with family, apathetic moment where God's not on our minds, coarse jesting, lack of vigilance to be holy. And every one of those moments is high treason against the glory of God. It's not a small thing. It's just not. And then I think of the all-powerful, all-knowing God who must punish sin. Right, I deserve, we deserve a tidal wave of God's wrath. God is jealous to be praised and obeyed. But doesn't that just make it all the sweeter to remember Jesus? All the sweeter. Remember that God's jealousy was poured out on his own son on the cross. Remember he suffered on your behalf. Remember he laid down his life of his own accord. Remember that after Jesus died and rose again to make a way, God didn't just leave it there, but he sent us his spirit. <laughs> I'm going to send you my spirit to open your eyes so you can actually see what's happened. You can have me dwell inside you. That's how much I want to be with you. I'm going to come and make my home in you until you come to be home with me. God took out your old dirty heart and gave you a new purified heart by the power of the Spirit so that you can humble yourself and repent and call on the name of the Lord day after day after day. It is only by the blood of Jesus that this happens. And that's what Christmas is about. Yes, sweet little baby Jesus. <laughs> we like those pictures. But he came to take on flesh so that he could grow up and die on a bloody, ugly cross. Right? All these new babies we have around here, I love them. I love the noise they make. I love how cute they are, right? I love when parents hold them in the air like Simba, right? When we announce them, like, I love all that. And none of us, when we first hold our little babies, we go, hope they die a really bloody, horrible, terrible death. But that's what Christmas is about, that God did it that way for us, that we might become children of God. And once we've turned from sin and tasted life in him, there's no going back. He's ours and we're his. And in that self-forgetful, shameless, fearless moment, we finally have found the satisfaction we were striving for. We found the intimacy and the provision and the love and the joy and the peace and the acceptance that always felt lacking even when we ran our hardest and were our most successful in this life. We found the fountain that keeps refilling and keeps overflowing to give us Rivers of living water. The jealous God poured out his wrath on the cross that we can be shameless and fearless in the very presence of God. Right now, you can be shameless and fearless in the presence of God. That's amazing. 
Instead of shame and fear, there's only joy and peace. Instead of selfish people trying to make a name for ourselves and gain our own praise, there's a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathering to say to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb who is slain, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Those eating the wedding supper of the lamb, not ashamed, not fearing, hearts set where they're supposed to be, what we were made to do, praising the name of Jesus forever and ever. That's a joy worth holding on to. Let me pray. So Lord, I know me saying it doesn't just make it happen. And so I'm just praying right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would get into hearts right now. Lord, there are people in this room that are ashamed You feel distant. They feel dirty. Lord, they've either been caught up in sin or maybe they've just been sinned against and been made to feel that way when they shouldn't. Lord, would you bring a deep, a deep comfort that for those who humble themselves and call on your name, they need never be ashamed. The one who knows all and sees all, knows all the rebellious deeds, knows all the deep, dark, dirty thoughts, and it said, I will pour up my wrath for those on my son, and when I look at you, I see you the way I see my son clothed in his righteousness. I love you. Come into my house. Eat with me. Drink with me. Be with me now and forever. So Lord, drive out shame right now. Drive it out of this place and replace it with joy. Advent joy in Jesus Joy now that we've been forgiven and looking forward to joy forever when we'll be in your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And Lord, I pray, Lord, some in this room are afraid. Lord, there's suffering that's made them fearful. There's hard situations that's made them fearful. There's relational brokenness that's made them fearful. Lord, fear comes in a million ways. But if you're as for us as your word tells us in Christ, and if you are going to pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our life, if your mercies are really new every morning, if you're going to be of ever-present help in our time of need, if you won't break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick, if you will make your strength perfect in our weakness, if you will be our good shepherd who leads us to green pastures and still waters and restores our soul and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and anoints our heads with oil and prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Lord, if, if that's true, then we can hear fear not as a loving invitation, not an impossible command. So Lord, help us be shameless and fearless. Not in our own merit, not in our own strength, not in our own accomplishments, but all in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf so that we are fully and freely and forever his. So Lord, please do that work in us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We get to eat and drink with Jesus now. Uh, If you're here and you're not yet trusting in Jesus, we've been praying that as you hear the word of the Lord that you would. We want you to trust him. We want you to find true, lasting joy.
But if you're not yet and you know you're not, we'd just love it if you talk to someone around you. They'd love to tell you about Jesus. If you're here and you're just uh, not yet willing to lay down some area of sin, you, you feel hard about it and you know in your heart you want that more than Jesus, again, we'd just love it if you got help, brought that out into the light with a friend or someone else in this body. But that's where you're at. Don't take communion. We don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself. First Corinthians says that. We can't fellowship with our idols and pretend to fellowship with Jesus. But we're praying this would be a moment of repentance. We'd come into joy again in Jesus. And if you're here and there's bitterness uh, against another believer, particularly in this family, this is meant to be a meal showing our unity in Christ. I'm going to say it every week till we all believe it. We're going to have differences about a million other things. They're going to get amplified in the coming months. We're going to have all sorts of differences, but our unity is right here in the body and blood, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is Emil saying, whatever other differences we have, man, it's good to be saved by Jesus. Man, it's good to be washed white by his blood. So if you're here and there's sin and there's brokenness and the, the brokenness and curse of this world has gotten you this week and this year and, and you're fighting through it, but oh, how you want grace to... Walk forward with Jesus. Oh, how you want mercy and help. This is a meal for broken sinners who say, we want help. We want mercy. Come, Lord, and reorient our hearts on you again. If you can't come up here or you just prefer to sit in your seat and meditate, you can raise your hand and we've got ushers who are going to bring the elements to you. We want you to bow your heads and start talking to Jesus while I read the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night he's betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So talk to Jesus, tell him about your shame, tell him about your fear, and then come up, receive his forgiveness, and then we're going to rejoice together in all that he's done for us.